The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on China-Africa relations through training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander. Kobus, unfortunately, is unavailable to join us today, so it's one of the rare times when I'll be doing the show solo. Today, we're going to be talking about Chinese debt restructuring in Africa, specifically focusing on the situation in Zambia. But before we get into that, let me just set the stage for what's going on globally in really what's becoming a full-blown debt crisis in dozens of developing countries around the world. Earlier this week, the United Nations Development Program, the UNDP, became the latest international agency to sound the alarm in a new report about the current crisis, and here's what they said. They estimate that 54 countries, 25 of which are in Africa, are now in immediate need of debt relief in order to avoid what they call more extreme poverty. And just to give you some perspective on what that means, the total population of those countries accounts for half of the world's poorest people. Surprisingly, for a UN report, and this doesn't happen very often, they did call out China for not working more collaboratively with traditional lenders known as the Paris Club, and also for not being fully transparent in their lending to developing countries. Again, UN agencies generally do not call on China that way, so that was a little bit of a surprise. Bloomberg News has also done some fascinating research on this issue and found that the number of countries with sovereign debt trading at distress levels has more than doubled in just the past six months, reaching 19 nations that are now home to 900 million people. So you get a sense of the scale of what's going on. And since China is the world's largest bilateral creditor, it plays a very important role, and that's going to be our focus today. As of today, in fact, the best estimates are that China's outstanding loans to developing countries now totals somewhere around $157 billion, but most experts think that figure is probably much higher. In fact, researchers at the A-Data Research Institute, which is part of William & Mary College in the U.S., just last month issued a report that said that China is now extending tens of of billions of dollars in unreported emergency loans to help some of its borrowers stay afloat. They said that Pakistan, Sri Lanka, and Argentina alone have received $32 billion since 2017. So there's a lot going on in this space, especially in Africa. Uh, Zambia is the most advanced in the debt restructuring process. The finance minister there says he hopes there's going to be some kind of resolution with the creditors committee before the end of the year. Ethiopia is just starting the process right now. China, like with Zambia, is the co-chair of the creditors committee. Chad now is working with the IMF. The holdup there is that private creditors, especially mining companies, uh, they are balking at some of the debt restructuring processes that are underway. And then also important note with Chad that they are one of three countries 
participating in the G20's common framework. And then also now a lot of attention is being focused on what's going on in Ghana. They too are working directly with the IMF. Most of those countries have quite sizable Chinese debt portfolios. And so let's get some insights now on what's going on from two reporters who are covering this story very closely. Matt Hill is a Bloomberg correspondent based in Mumbela in South Africa, near the Mozambican border. And Tom Hancock is also with Bloomberg and works as a senior reporter covering the Chinese economy from Hong Kong. So we're going to get both sides of the story today. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. It's great to speak with you. Thank you very much. Good to be here. You both recently collaborated on an excellent story in Bloomberg Business Week entitled Debt Defaults Are a Stress Test for China's Soft Power Strategy. I'd like to kind of explore that story and use that as a jumping off point for our conversation today. Matt, let's start with you. The story focused on the debt restructuring situation in Zambia and the important role that China's playing in that process. Can you do us a favor before we get in too deep and just give us an update as far as you know as to what's going on with the Zambian debt restructuring process and where we are right now? It took a long time for the government to get anywhere in the debt restructuring process. Um, since they initially signaled that they would be looking to restructure their external debt in, I think it was the first quarter of 2020, not much happened until this year. So since the president of Zambia, Hakeende Hichilema, held a telephone call with Xi Jinping on May 31st, China agreed to join the official bilateral creditors committee. Um, which has since then held two meetings, the second of which culminated in the official bilateral creditors providing what are called financing assurances, um, which essentially are an indication of willingness to, ne to negotiate their debts, which was enough to unlock a $1.3 billion program from the International Monetary Fund and move the debt restructuring process along. And where we are at at the moment is now where the negotiations actually begin, primarily between the official bilateral creditors and the Zambian government, of which China is by far the largest, with um, more than, well, about 75% of Zambia's um, total bilat official bilateral debt. And then also the commercial creditors, which include bondholders. Zambia has $3 billion worth of outstanding euro bonds. And as you said, the government has mentioned that they are targeting to sign um, a memorandum of understanding between the official bilateral, with the official bilateral creditors committee um, by the end of this year or early next year. Um, and then also negotiate in parallel with that with the commercial creditors. Why has it been taking so long? It seems like this process has been dragging out for more than a year now that the Zambian government has been calling for this, at least since President Hichilema came to power. Any indication as to why it's taking so long? Yeah, a, a number of reasons. I mean, as I mentioned, Zambia started the restructuring process back in early 2020 and um, then indicated towards the end of that year that they would use what is called the G20 Common Framework to restructure their debts. And then the following year, it was an election year, so not much happened. Then President Hakeinde Hichilema 
won the election in August last year, and that kind of allowed the process to begin in earnest. Since then, China was quite reluctant to join the official bilateral creditors committee. Um, and it took that May 31st phone call from Hakainde Hichilema, the president of Zambia, to the president of China, Xi Jinping, to convince China at the highest level to join with the official, the other official bilateral cre creditors, which essentially is the Paris Club. And China agreed to co-chair Zambia's official bilateral creditors committee with France, with South Africa as the vice chair. And since then, as, as I said, there have been two meetings and there has been some pro progress, but it was, it, it took some time for China to agree to join the committee. So, Tom, there are a couple issues here that Matt raised, which I'd like to get your take on from your vantage point in Hong Kong. Number one, the reluctance from the Chinese to participate in these collaborative multilateral frameworks. Why do the Chinese not want to work more collaboratively with the Paris Club, with multilateral uh, organizations, institutions on these debt restructuring processes? They do seem like they're apprehensive at best. Second part of that question is when we talk about the Chinese, that's kind of a vague word because in the context of Zambia, for example, there's somewhere in the range of 12 to 16 different creditors. And it seems like there's a lot of, you know, chefs in the kitchen there and nobody's really organizing it. So talk to us a little bit about the structure and the reluctance of the Chinese to engage in these kinds of processes. So one of the things that I wanted to really try and make clear in the story is exactly what you've just alluded to, which is that China is not a monolith. And that's something that's very familiar uh, to listeners of your podcast, uh, but sometimes gets a bit lost in, in media coverage of, of Chinese foreign policy. But I just want to bracket that and then uh, deal with your first question. So if we, first of all, sort of treat China as a, as a monolith, you know, we could think about why it might be reluctant to join in uh, the traditional uh, debt restructuring system, which has been dominated by the rich countries um, organized under under the Paris Club. So the the first reason I think will is will just be obvious to anybody that you know China doesn't enjoy particularly good relations at the moment with the U.S., um, which is obviously a big uh, player in these sorts of restructuring agreements, and also sort of by extension with you know the G7. Uh, certainly tensions between China and and the the advanced countries have, have risen a lot in recent years. And so there's just sort of a fundamental lack of trust. Um, another factor, I think, is that you know, China has for years wanted to have more say in the multilateral players like the IMF, for example. You know, the IMF and uh, is, is dominated by US and Europe in its decision making, and, and China has, has wanted to um, have more influence there. And one of the features of the debt restructuring system that evolved under the Paris Club is that basically the multilateral creditors, uh, the World Bank and the IMF, they are exempt from restructuring. And definitely there are, are people within Chinese officialdom who have raised questions about that principle. And, you know, I can think, I can think you can understand, you know, they, they sort of um, feel that these institutions haven't been reformed 
to you know sort of more be more reflective of their interests so why should they protect the interests of these uh, multilateral institutions so uh, that's just a couple of things that, that have been at, at play and then when we get on to the the really crucial point which is what you were alluding to about the fragmentation within China's system so you have a lot of different creditors you have the banks such as China Development Bank, Exim Bank, which are really huge. And in many cases, they are on the same level uh, within China's political system as the regulators that are meant to regulate them. Um, so it's, it's always been difficult to regulate uh, the big banks within China. And then on top of that, it just seems like there was no official within China that was overall having responsibility for China's foreign bank lending. So the, as far as we can tell, there, there is no one in the Politburo, for example, who clearly has this portfolio. And China's bank lending overseas, as, as you noted at the beginning, has grown very rapidly in the last two decades. But no one ministry or official has clearly been in charge of that process. So there was a big problem in, in coordinating different banks and, and different ministries. And I can get into that in a bit more detail because it's, it's kind of interesting. We didn't, we didn't get to it in the article. We we're just trying to make this general point about fragmentation. But there's actually a bit more to say on how these, these different fragmented agencies um, actually got together as this restructuring process got uh, carried on. No, please do dive into that, because I think it's absolutely central to what we're going to be talking about later in the program. Yeah, sure. So I would say that, you know, I've already alluded to the banks being a player in this. And um, from what I've, I've understood from talking to, you know, people with connections to uh, Chinese banks, uh, the, the heads of, of these very large banks, you know, they are part of the Communist Party's um, promotion system, you know, so you've got to understand these are state-owned banks. And so, you know, people can, in theory, within China's system, sort of be parachuted from running a province to running a bank and then back to running a province. And they want to make sure if they can move up through the system that they have a good record. And admitting that you made a lot of bad loans and that these assets that you had in your bank aren't really performing assets at all and you're going to have to write them off. That's not something that's going to go down well uh, in your career. So we see that within China as well. As everyone knows, there's a lot of bad debt in China's banking system. And in general, the principle in China's banking system is to extend and pretend. So rather than writing off bad assets, just try and um, extend the uh, maturity of loans and so on, um, you know, change the interest rate and try and uh, sort of hide them in that way. So you've got the bank executives, they're big players. And in, in theory, regulating the banks, you've got several different agencies. So you've got the People's Bank of China and you've got the Finance Ministry and you've got the China Banking Regulator, all of whom have different heads and they have slightly different responsibilities. The interesting thing that came up in my reporting on this. Several people mentioned that it does seem now that when it comes to overseas lending, um, it's China's finance ministry 
which has taken a sort of lead role. So it wasn't quite clear who was in charge, but now it does seem that the finance ministry is in charge. And uh, the reason for that would be that the finance ministry is essentially the the official shareholder of uh, several of the large Chinese state banks. And then you've got finally another player in all this, um, which is the foreign ministry. And we mentioned in our in our story uh, several times Du Xiaohui, who is the Chinese ambassador in Zambia. And he, as a representative of the foreign ministry, as I understand it, has, you know, in public, he's been quite you know, dip- diplomatic, obviously not trying to deviate from China's general line that they like to do things bilaterally. But from what I understand, behind the scenes, uh, people within China's foreign ministry, because they're worried um, about the thing that we mentioned in our headline, which is soft power and the way China uh, appears around the world, I think that they have been pushing for more engagement in these kind of multilateral debt restructuring processes. And, and they have had some influence there, as I understand it. But the system is, is deeply opaque. And it doesn't seem that there's any top official who really wants to take on this hot potato at this point, because you've got really, as you alluded to, problems across the developing world this year with um, paying back debt, basically. And there needs to be restructuring in a bunch of countries. And it's not clear that you can get any glory in that if you're a, a top Chinese official. So, you know, that that's also sort of hampered the process that doesn't seem that anyone really wants to take this on. Um, yeah, and these are some very powerful factions when we take into account the policy banks, banks like the ICBC, the Ministry of Finance, the Ministry of Commerce, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I mean, who can be that person to coordinate all of that other than Xi Jinping himself is, you know, it seems impossible in many respects. So it's a very complex landscape. Matt, let's kind of take what Tom has laid out there and bring it back to Africa. And one of the questions that I've had looking at this for the 13 plus years that I've been covering this is that I don't really get the sense that African stakeholders who are involved in these negotiations have a full understanding of the complexities of the Chinese system as Tom has made it out to be. Oftentimes, it'll just be the Chinese. In many respects, a lot of the negotiators and people in the finance ministries, including in Zambia, were trained in the West, educated in the West, and have been basically brought up dealing with the Western multilateral system and are unfamiliar with the Chinese system. Based on your reporting and the stakeholders you speak with, how well-versed do you think that people in Zambia, in Kenya, and elsewhere in Africa are in understanding the lay of the land as Tom has made it out, and then also kind of how the Chinese are playing by a different set of rules in many respects than what the U.S. and Europeans have done over the past decades? Yeah, that's a really good point. I can't speak for many countries outside of Zambia, but in Zambia, you have a new government um, filled with people who have been in the opposition for more than more than a decade, I guess, a, a long time. Um, so many many of them do not necessarily even have experience within government. Never mind dealing with a foreign superpower like China. And I know there was quite a bit of criticism within Zambia itself from from the opposition parties to how the new Zambian government 
had approached its relations with China, especially related to the debt restructuring. For example, there was a foreign um, there was a there was a visit by finance ministry official from Zambia to China earlier this year, and people raised questions as to why Zambia didn't send the finance minister himself or even the president, seeing as though they were asking China for help in um, renegotiating about $6 billion worth of debt. So that's certainly one issue. As to how well-versed the how, how well-versed Zambian government officials are in how the Chinese system works, um, both in terms of the banks and the government, I'm not sure. It's probably very difficult to, listen, it's difficult for anybody to understand, even someone like Tom, I think, and I'll speak on behalf of you, Tom, but you you study this very closely, and it's hard to understand. The opacity, as you talked about, is is punishing. Yeah, I was going to add that, you know, it's difficult for Chinese people to, to understand uh, what's going on in China's system, and it's difficult for Chinese officials themselves to understand what's going on in China's system because of opacity. So, you know, that's a lot of the reason for the delay. You know, one ministry doesn't know what another ministry is doing. Um, it's just been a feature of China's system, maybe. You know, it's just something to do with being a big country, also something about the, the secrecy that you have in China's sort of Leninist-inspired system. So I'm not sure, you know, even if you had a PhD in a Communist Party history, I don't know how much help that would be in getting your debt restructured. It probably wouldn't hurt you, but you'd still be dealing with a, a, a very difficult situation. But there are some fundamental cultural differences here that we can discuss because the Chinese just don't fundamentally believe in canceling the core debt. So they'll cancel these grants or these zero interest loans, which amount to about one or two percent of their overall debt portfolio. Many of those are handled by their international aid agencies. So they're not really the same kind of loans as the concessional loans, which are the low interest loans, or these commercial loans, which occupy quite a bit in the global south of the debt portfolio. And that is something that in many global south countries, especially in Africa, they're unaccustomed to because dealing with in the past, the, the the debt restructuring frameworks, the West has basically come through on a couple of occasions and said, okay, we're going to cancel the debts, we're going to wipe out the debts. And you hear over and over again in Africa, Matt, the call to cancel Chinese debts. And I'm always shaking my head because it's like, no, you guys don't get it. The Chinese don't cancel debt. And that's just not the way they play. And, and that's what makes me think that they don't even understand the basic cultural differences between the West and China, even that, that fundamental difference. What do you get? What's your sense of that, Matt? Exactly. That's a, and that's a great point. Now, if you look at the G20's common framework for debt treatments beyond the DSSI, which is, it sounds very complicated and it's, um, it sounds quite confusing, but it's actually just a two-page document um, that was released by the G20 back in November 2020, I think it was. And within that document, it, in, in those two pages, it lays out um, a very broad outline of how restructuring would work under this new coordinating mechanism. And in that document, there's a sentence which says that countries will creditor countries will only be required to cancel or write off their debts or their loans 
in quote unquote the most difficult cases. And Lee Bukait, who is one of the world's foremost experts on sovereign debt restructurings, he's been involved in more than a dozen of them, um, said that he sees Chinese fingerprints on that clause in the common framework, just because of that point that, that you've um, just made. So certainly this is going to make the restructuring perhaps a lot more complicated because on the one hand, you've got the International Monetary Fund preparing the debt sustainability analysis for these countries like Zambia that are seeking to restructure their debt, which basically lays out the parameters, the economic and the financial parameters of exactly how much debt relief a country like Zambia needs. Because the IMF isn't allowed to lend to countries that are in debt distress unless they've got a path out of that. They don't want to throw good money after bad money, essentially. Um, and that's the discussions that we're having right now in Ghana, in Chad, in Zambia, is all of these pathways out in order to pave the way for the IMF money to come in. Is that correct? Exactly. So the IMF pre prepares the debt sustainability analysis, which says how much relief the, countries need, the country needs. In Zambia's case, um, the, the government has said that they need a 49% reduction in the total amount of debt that they are seeking to restructure. Now, this is where it gets a bit technical. Um, basically, the government is looking at restructuring $12.8 billion worth of external debt. And they're saying that they need to reduce what's called the net present value of that debt um, by 49% to meet the, um, the economic targets laid out in the International Monetary Fund's debt sustainability analysis. Now, to do that, they can, the creditors can choose um, essentially one of two paths. Um, either they reduce the total amount that the government needs to pay them back ultimately and get a higher interest rate in the meantime, or they can choose to protect that what's called the principal, the amount of money that the government needs to pay them back at the end of the day, and push that out many years into the future and pay a much lower interest rate until they have to pay the loan back. And a lot of the experts that follow this say that that's probably the pathway that China will seek to push for, um, and, the, and the Chinese lenders, um, state banks included. But it might be difficult to achieve that when, you, when the IMF is saying that you need a 49% reduction in the net present value. So that's what they've done in Ecuador just a couple of weeks ago. They restructured the debt. They kicked the can basically down the road and said, we're going to elongate the repayment terms, lower the interest rates. And something that they did also, which was very interesting, is that they kind of broke apart the resource for infrastructure deals that they had, which were tied to the loan. So they allowed now Ecuador to sell more of its oil in order to generate cash for itself, as opposed to kind of repaying some of those debts. So that was very interesting to look at. Uh, Tom, one of the things that Matt talked about was the DSSI, that's the Debt Service Suspension Initiative. I think by any objective measure, and I'll say this so you guys don't have to, because you're good reporters who can't expose your feelings, it's been an abysmal failure by any measure. This was something that was supposed to help developing countries to kind of pull out of the hole that they got put into. Many 
who were doing very, very well, particularly in Africa, prior to the pandemic. And then a convergence of events just kind of came down on them like a ton of bricks. And the debt sustainability just blew out and they couldn't do it. The developing world is really at the mercy of the G20. And one of the things that I've noticed is in every single G20 summit and finance minister's meetings, this issue just kept getting pushed lower and lower and lower. If you remember last year, the G20 worked very hard to get the global minimum tax. Boy, they worked very hard on that one. That was a top U.S. priority. Everybody came together. It passed through. They literally copied and pasted, and I'm not exaggerating here, copied and pasted the debt sustainability initiative from one meeting to the other and it just seems like they don't really care. And so the DSSI has been a disappointment in many respects. The common framework has also been a disappointment. One of the major sticking blocks, Tom, that I'd like to get your take on is the complaints that other members of the G20 have about Chinese debt. So the Chinese, they say, are not behaving like normal countries do with their policy banks. Normal countries, according to the West, and I'm putting my little rabbit ear air quotes up here, normal countries, policy banks give concessional loans. That is low interest loans, 2%, 3%, 50-year repayment terms, long repayment holidays. That's a concessional loan. Here we have the China Development Bank giving commercial loans. And that's not something that a policy bank usually does. Commercial loans are not subject to the DSSI. That is one of the big sticking points. Can you speak to some of those issues in terms of the approach that China's policy banks have taken in terms of their lending policies using the mixing commercial and concessional, and how that's complicating the restructuring process. Okay, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. The first thing maybe I'd, I'd like to follow up is the, the point about debt forgiveness and whether or not China does that or doesn't do that. I mean, I would be sort of wary of saying that it is something that China could never do. Uh, and the reason for that would be first that this does happen domestically in China from time to time. So there was a big problem with local government debt around 2015. And what Beijing basically did, because local governments have been borrowing from banks, exactly the same banks in many cases that uh, countries around the world borrow from, like China Development Bank, they had loans that couldn't really be repaid. And what Beijing decided to do was turn those non-performing loans into bonds, uh, which the banks bought instead. And there was a natural reduction there in the amount that local governments had to repay. So as long as it's done quietly, I think the Chinese system can deal with this. And then the second thing I would say is that it took Western countries a long time uh, after developing countries started entering debt distress on a large scale in the 1980s, it took the advanced economies a long time to also get behind this idea of, of debt forgiveness. Um, so you had throughout the 90s just sort of gradual increases in the amount of debt that could be written off. And then, of course, there was the, you know, the Jubilee campaign and stuff in the early 2000s that got civil society involved and then there were much larger write-offs. But there's a learning process there. And I think that academics who I spoke to thought that China could also be on a, on a similar journey. So that's, that's, that's just one thing I wanted to say about that. Then 
So dealing, uh, you know, your questions about the DSSI and, and so on. What I have, what I heard from from the people I spoke to is that you know China was pretty annoyed with how the DSSI worked, primarily because private creditors such as the bondholders, those who you know receive payments on the bond debt that developing countries have, they just didn't get involved in the debt service suspension initiative, and you know China just thought. We're taking losses essentially on our lending, and private creditors are not uh, doing their part, and so they weren't very happy about that. And I think that does explain some of the reluctance around the the follow up to the DSSI, the Common Framework, as well. You know, there were big questions in China about whether private creditors would really be also taking a fair share of the of the restructuring burden. And that's a legitimate complaint. I mean, in many respects, given the fact that bondholders actually, uh, you know, own considerably more debt in Africa and developing countries than the Chinese do. Yeah, absolutely. So, along with the point about fragmentation and, and Beijing not being a monolith, that was the other thing that I wanted to get into our story a little bit more was the the real rapid rise of uh, private lending to. Developing countries, and and you're right. Um, in that respect, Zambia is a bit of an unusual case. You know, every country is different, and that's why it's so hard to generalize about these restructuring processes. But obviously, in Zambia's case, it owes more to Chinese banks, Chinese lenders, than it does to uh, private creditors. But across the developing world, as you say, it's actually uh, you know the private lenders who um, are owed slightly more. So we should definitely dig into that and uh you know matthew i think knows knows a bit more than me about what's going on with the with the private creditors in 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 the zambia case another another thing to throw in here is the role of ratings agencies so uh, quite a few people who uh watch debt restructuring are, are a little bit critical of the role that ratings agencies play in this obviously that so these are companies that basically you know give uh different ratings to different sovereigns, different countries, and that determines sort of the, the interest rates that they can borrow at. And that's what private creditors sort of look at to determine whether or not they should they should lend or what rates they should lend to different countries. And, you know, if if a country got involved in in the in the DSSI and if a country gets uh, this you know says we're gonna restructure under the common framework uh, often they'll get a downgrade on their ratings, and um, you know some people sort of question. Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. If if this is something that's positive ultimately for for a country's credit profile, um, you know the ratings agencies they could they could maybe come up with a better way of treating that. You know they're also private companies; they have uh, you know their own responsibilities. So I'm sure they would disagree. But that, that's also they're also sort of playing a, an interesting role here. So yeah, the DSSI, it wasn't judged as a, as a big success in China. The final thing is just what you alluded to. So the other G20 countries were, were I think, quite annoyed that China basically said China, China Development Bank is, is a commercial bank. And so that should be exempt from the debt service suspension. And, you know, that was seen as sort of unfair because we... You know, we know that China Development Bank is is very closely linked to the, the Chinese state. So actually, there was an interesting sort of compromise, it seems, uh, coming out of uh, the IMF 
agreement on, on Zambia, which is that uh, some of the China Development Bank loans and, and maybe even other bank loans are counted as official debt uh, when they are insured by you know, China's uh, sovereign credit insurer, Sinoshore. So, so using that principle, and that's, that seems to have been agreed as, under this common framework, uh, that means that more, more Chinese bank debt, including Chinese development bank debt, can be included in the, um, the sovereign part of the restructuring under the, under the common framework. But there will still be Chinese lending that, that falls into the, the private creditor discussions. And I believe there are two different committees there. Um, I think Matthew knows more about it than, than I do. Yeah, exactly. I mean, on the, on the common framework, uh, the document does stress that the, the government seeking debt relief must set the key parameters of the relief that it's seeking to ensure f um, fair burden sharing among both bilateral creditors as well as private creditors. Um, and it says that they must seek debt relief from private creditors at least as favorable as that provided by official bilateral creditors. How easy it will be to ensure that that does in fact happen because sequentially the, the government of Zambia has met with the official bilateral creditors committee um, and presented them the IMF's debt sustainability analysis much earlier than they did with the bondholders, for example. So the bondholders in Zambia have formed an ad hoc committee and appointed financial and legal advisors. And then that doesn't include banks and other commercial creditors from both China as well as other countries. And as far as I know, those commercial creditors are yet to, those non-bondholder commercial creditors, shall I say, are yet to form their own creditors committee. And that in itself might be quite a complex exercise. Um, who's going to chair that committee and how will the coordination just within that committee work? So on the one hand, it doesn't matter perhaps too much as to which Chinese lenders are considered to be private or, or commercial or which are considered to be official bilateral um, because the common framework does require fair burden sharing across all creditor groups. But forming the committee of commercial creditors might be quite a complex exercise. Yeah, this difference between the Chinese creditors and the private creditors is really important to understand, especially for the context. There was a report that came out from the UK-based NGO Debt Justice earlier this year that got a lot of traction. Boy, the Chinese have taken this report and really run with it. Let me just kind of lay it out. They, they detailed, they said private creditor debt in Africa is $247 billion, accounting for 35% of all external debt. Chinese creditors account for 83 billion, accounting for only 12%. So Chinese debt is one third the size of the private creditor. But more importantly, the interest rates, the average interest rate paid on that debt is 5% for the private creditors and 2.7% for the Chinese debt. So again, very important to understand that context that while we're talking about the Chinese role in Zambia, 
and in Africa in general, the private creditors are a very important player. Gentlemen, let's wrap up our conversation trying to get a sense of where we go from now. Uh, It's not encouraging, Tom, based on what you've kind of laid out that, again, there isn't a centralized approach to debt restructuring, not only in Africa, but also in places like Sri Lanka and Laos and a number of other countries that are staring into the abyss right now in terms of their debt sustainability. And then Matt just would love to get your take on whether or not you feel that the Zambian process is going to serve as some kind of template that other countries can model on. So, Tom, let's start with you. Give us your your short-term forecast as to how China is going to approach debt restructuring, uh, not only in Africa, but also in elsewhere around the world, based on what you're seeing in Hong Kong. Well, I think that there is probably an optimistic take on the Zambia story and then also a pessimistic take. And which one is correct, we'll have to see. So the, the optimistic take would be that, you know, this really was quite a landmark thing to have uh, China and the Paris Club together in a room, uh, not literally in a room, I believe we, the meetings were online, but for them to all get together and agree on a common debt restructuring uh, framework, you know, we won't know in, in Zambia's case exactly what they agreed to, I think, until the end of the year. So that'll be something very, very key to watch, watch out for. Um, but the fact that happened is, is a big deal. The fact that China was able to uh, coordinate all these different agencies within its government and different banks to to make that happen is is very positive and you know the fact they've done it once suggests that they can do it again and you know once you've done something usually the second or the third time you can do it a little better a little faster so that's sort of the the optimistic take and then also we've established some some kind of norms like i mentioned about how to treat China development bank debt. And, and the IMF now has sort of a principle on that. It seems that, that China can go along with that. And so that, that's the optimistic take. The pessimistic take would be that, you know, in Zambia's case, it took about two years for this to happen. And, um, you know, there isn't, as I said, there isn't clearly yet a very senior official in, in, in China who, who's kind of taking this on. Although, as I mentioned, the, the finance ministry does seem to have more clout than it used to, and that could be important. But, you know, it took so long in Zambia's case, other countries, as you mentioned, uh, you know, time is is a luxury they don't have. And um, so in that sense, Zambia could be a not very positive precedent. So we'll just have to really see what happens, I think, with, with other countries. You know, firstly, the low-income countries that could use the common framework. It's important to mention that the common framework we alluded to you know, is um, officially for lower income countries. And then also, so it wouldn't apply to somewhere like Sri Lanka, which is right in the middle of its debt restructuring. So for middle income countries, you know, like like Sri Lanka, it's going to be very interesting to see whether or not some kind of ad hoc Paris Club plus China can, a committee can emerge based on the Zambia model. So, you know, that that's going to be something to wait wait and see. And hopefully, you know, these things can go smoothly and and as quickly as possible. And of course, the Sri Lanka issue is a little bit different, given the fact that India and Japan are the other large bilateral creditors in Sri Lanka, two countries that China is certainly not getting along with right now. So, Tom, you talked about the geopolitics complicating all of this, and Sri Lanka is just a hot mess of geopolitics. So something to keep keep an eye on there. Matt, we're going to give you the last word. You cover the Zambian debt crisis 
up front. Tell us what you think is going to happen. Look into your crystal ball for us. Yeah, just going back to what you were saying about could Zambia serve as a template for other countries looking to restructure their debt as the world goes through what will probably be an incredibly difficult economic time. And I guess um, that's, that's very difficult to say because when you, when you are a finance minister and you are faced with the stark choice of paying for food imports or servicing your external debt and you need to go to your president or your prime minister and um, say that you, you need to do something to rework the debts because they are no longer affordable. And your president says, okay, fine, um, what, are, what are my options? You say, well, Zambia's been using the common framework. And he says, how, he or she says, how, how long will that take? And you say, well, Zambia started two years ago and there's not really end in sight, any end in sight yet. Um, it might be quite discouraging. So I know that um, right now in Washington at the World Bank and IMF annual meetings, there's a lot of talk going on about how the common framework can be improved, giving designated timelines to um, when each step should happen is one of those things. Um, as Tom said, the common framework only applies to low income countries. There's a lot of talk about including middle income countries in the common framework too. But certainly, as you say, the case of Sri Lanka, where it becomes incredibly complex geopolitically, something like the common framework could help because in any debt restructuring, there is an abundance of suspicion among different creditor groups where um, creditors are worried that another creditor might be getting a better deal than they are. So if you bring everyone to the same table, everyone puts their cards transparently on the table, as has so far happened among the bilateral creditors in the Zambian case, then perhaps that could be very helpful to the process. And even though it has taken some time in Zambia, it could actually help expedite talks because it could help address some of those suspicions among the different creditor groups. So certainly a lot of countries, Ghana included, Sri Lanka included, will be watching closely what happens with, the, with Zambia's experience with the common framework, especially over the next few months. Well, the next G20 meeting is in November, and it is going to be a hotly contested one because it's expected that Chinese President Xi Jinping will make an in-person appearance along with Russian President Vladimir Putin and U.S. President Joe Biden. So that is going to be a wrestling match, which I think everybody's going to want to see. The concern, of course, is that the big geopolitics of the day completely blow up any discussion about the common framework and debt relief for the poorest countries. So we'll have to keep an eye on that. The article is, Debt Defaults Are a Stress Test for China's Soft Power Strategy. Absolutely essential reading if you want to understand what's happening in the Zambian debt crisis. It was written by Matt Hill, who's a Bloomberg correspondent based in Mbombela. Did I get that right this time? That's it. Well done. Mbombela. There we go. In South Africa. Sounds like a beautiful part of South Africa near the Mozambican border. Also by Tom Hancock in Hong Kong, who's also a senior reporter covering the Chinese economy from the territory. Gentlemen, thank you both for taking the time to join me today. It was absolutely fascinating. I know people want to follow what you guys are reading and writing, and you're both active on Twitter. Matt, can you tell us your Twitter name and that we uh, we can put in the show notes? 
Yeah, sorry, it's a bit of a mouthful. It's at Matt Stephen Hill, M-A-T-T-S-T-E-P-H-E-N-H-I-L-L. No worries, I'll put it in the show notes. And Tom, if people want to follow what you're reading and writing, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, it is at Hancock Tom, and I post there most days. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you both again. And Cobus will be joining me again next week for another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Until then, thanks so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Tag us on Twitter at ChinaGS Project and visit us at ChinaGlobalSouth.com. If you speak French, check out our full coverage at projetafriquechine.com and Afrique on Twitter. That's Afrique with a K. And you'll also find links to our sites and social media channels in Arabic. <laughs>